0: Good evening, everyone. I'm Ian James Wright from Washington, D.C., and you're listening to The Alphabetical Fugazi, the only podcast that devotes an episode each to discussing every song in the band's catalog, from Fuga-A to Fugazi, z And uh, a little bit of a first today, doing two songs at once, kind of. It's an interesting discussion in itself. But uh, joining me today to discuss Provisional, from the 1989 Margin Walker EP, and Reprovisional, from the 1990 album Repeater, is Dana Williams, an associate professor of sociology at California State University, Chico. How are you doing, Dana?
1: I'm great. Nice to be talking with you, Ian.
0: Yeah, I'm doing pretty well myself. Just had myself a slice of ice cream cake, so I'm ready to go, man.
1: (laughs) That's a great thing to be eating on a really, really hot day, a really, really hot week, and a really, really hot month, and a hot year. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. Yeah, my, uh, my kid had a, a birthday like a f- couple of weeks ago, but the ice cream cake, she waits in the freezer for you, you know, she's uh, she's there for you. So, um, yeah, Dana, I found your essay online, which is from many years ago, called Geofugazi, colon, The Radical Geography of Fugazi. Uh, we were just searching around the internet as one does in my line of work, which is finding out minutia about Fugazi type in the right keywords and your essay will come up. And I think we discussed it on the episode for, Oh, um, so I got in touch and then it, it turned out, I think you had emailed me previously just to say hi. So we were already in touch. Um, so <laughs> right. it's, uh, right, absolutely. yeah. Do you, do you remember writing that
1: thing? I do remember it, um, and you're absolutely right. It was many years ago. I think it probably was 17 years ago now, probably 2004, I think. Um, I just finished a master's degree in geography, and so I was, it was very much in my my headspace at the time. Um, but, but so was the album, album uh, The Argument, too, which a lot of the, the lyrics that, that I, I bring up um, in that essay are, are from The Argument.
0: So you have a master's in geography and you have, uh, what, like a PhD in, in sociology?
1: That's right. That's right. Culture, geography, and sociology. I'm overly educated.
0: (laughs) You, you sound extremely educated. The, the, the intersection (laughs) of those two fields of study sounds like, uh, yeah, it might yield some really amazing insights. Um, and, uh, I guess, with with the right person wielding them, those insights are uh, related to Fugazi. So that's that's pretty cool, man.
1: (laughs) Yeah, and, and I think a lot of what I was writing in that essay ended up being also pretty sociological. I mean, there's a good deal of overlap in a lot of social science fields. So I think what some people could read as culture geography in that essay also are fairly sociological. And there's also a fair amount of economics and kind of political science sort of stuff in there, too. Um, I, I think a lot of people could probably pick apart the lyrics of Fugazi from a variety of different sort of intellectual vantage points, and and say a lot of stuff about it. And and who knows, like how accurate it would be to the original intentions, uh, you know, the lyricists and the singers. But um, the, the, it was my take at the time, at that moment in my life, and at that point in history. So
0: yeah, I I come from an English literature background, so um, yeah, examining things through different critical frameworks is certainly something that i've looked into and uh but yeah that that's 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 a framework that i had not considered before so yeah i'll i'll put it in the show notes again um so oh, people cool. can check it out uh it, interesting academic type reading about fugazi i mean if you're coming to this podcast you're going to be interested in that i would imagine
1: it, it's definitely veers on the nerdier end of a fugazi fan's interest in the band i think um, and it just just to be totally clear, it, it's something I haven't edited since then, and in, I did re-look at it, and there are some things I probably would change about it, but for the most part, it's it's what I wrote 17 years ago on a page that I haven't updated since then. I mean, it's on tripod.com, and I mean, I'm, to be <laughs> yes. honest, I'm amazed that tripod.com even exists, but it does, so that's great for everyone, I guess.
0: <laughs> yeah, I guess that means get it while you can, listeners. <laughs> Who knows? Sure, sure. Try Who knows it. when it's going to crash? <laughs> might go down any day. <laughs> well, I mean, just in terms of Fugazi, though, um, what's your story, Dana? How do you get into them? And um, yeah, what was your fandom like? Did you get to see them live? All, all those great questions. Feel free to roll them into uh, one long response if you want to.
1: Sure, yeah. Um, I think probably like a lot of people, um, I encountered them at a certain point in my life when I think I was ready, um, probably to hear a band like Fugazi. Um, although I think initially I wasn't ready and it took me a little bit of thinking and, and kind of um, growing in order to kind of uh, appreciate them. But I think the first time I ever heard of something called Fugazi was in the early 1990s. Uh, a high school classmate um, had a this is not a Fugazi T-shirt. And I thought that was very odd and strange and I didn't know what that meant. And so I asked and I learned that Fugazi was a band band. Um, he, he ended up actually being in a band, a Minnesota band where I'm from called the Min at evils, this kind of almost punk rockabilly kind of band. Um, but it, but it, it was an intriguing enough idea. Like, well, why would someone not want it to be a band t-shirt? I didn't quite get what that meant, but, um, and then I think maybe a few years later, another friend of mine, uh, lent me in on the kill taker on cassette tape. And I, he and I were both in track together and we were at a high school track meet. And so I sat around, on a walkman cassette player and listen to probably most of it on the cut on the kill and I, I remember very distinctly kind of forgetting the world around me like not noticing what's happening you know people moving around doing stuff you know then set a track event track meet and just having my mind blown and not really even understanding what i was listening to it did, it didn't make sense all i knew was that i really liked it and that it was very very different Um, So it took me a while to kind of think about what it was, and and later I asked that same friend, you know, what was that band that you lent me the the cassette of? And so he told me, and he recommended that I go find 13 songs, which was, he said, quote-unquote, their best. Um, But when I went to a record store, um, it was around the same time that Red Medicine um, came out, so I got it, like, I think, probably within the first few weeks of Red Medicine being out. So that was my first actual Fugazi buy. And, of course, as you know, like, Red Medicine is sort of in on the kill taker and the things that that threw me for a loop on in the kill on, in the kill taker were even more present on red medicine sure and i was further kind of um had my head kind of blown back by it um but after that i mean i i went out and i found like all of the older fugazi stuff like used and since then of course i i got everything new whenever it would come out i mean it's one of those you know on um, was it tuesday nights or whatever tuesday morning or whatever um, when records would come out people would come at like you know yeah, twelve oh one. that's Midnight, the way i you know, remember it album. Yeah. <laughs> yeah um and, it, and my experience like fugazi was always sort of like a secret handshake like i um if i saw like an album of theirs on someone's shelf for their record collection i mean it was an immediately a positive sign like if if it was someone i just met i was like oh they like fugazi <laughs> <laughs> um and i and i gained good friends because of I guess because of that handshake, like it kind of instantly kind of keyed me into like, oh, this is a this is going to be a person who has interesting taste that that kind of appreciates this in a way that I appreciate it. Um, and I also kind of over time I found out it was also a yardstick to gauge compatibility. Like one time, um, someone said, oh, I like Fugazi, but only their first album, um, and everything after that was crap. And <laughs> and and being someone who whose first experience with Fugazi was in on the Kill Taker, I thought. Yeah, I I like I like that first album. I like the first two EPs, but like to say that nothing else after that was good. Like it, I mean, I I hate to say it. I mean, it's a nice, they're a nice person, but like it immediately, you know, dropped my appraisal of their taste in music.
0: Yeah, you Um, you sort of can't help uh, having a little bit of an emotional reaction to a statement like that.
1: Yeah, yeah, and and I mean, I I didn't want to. I don't want to profess to be a music snob or anything, but um, it's one of those things that it. You know, for there's a, if there's a band in your life who, you know, you you grew and grew up with, um, and it means a lot to you. I mean, it's a, it's a great way of kind of understanding your world, but also understanding other people and their perceptions of the world, too. Um, and I also kind of encountered Fugazi in kind of random ways, too, with people. Um, and a good example of that is, uh, so I'm from Minnesota originally, and I went to school in North Dakota next door. And in 1997, the, the spring, there was this, like, apocalyptic flood where the Red River, which flows north into the Hudson Bay in Canada, like flooded. It was like all these um, perfect conditions where the snow melted at the wrong rate and like, you know, huge, you know, precipitation that year and like everything just worked wrong. And so the city that the university was in that I was attending at the time just flooded. I mean, it was like this apocalyptic flood and, you know, everyone had to evacuate. And when I was back in my hometown in Minnesota, in the newspaper, um, my parents showed me this story, this newspaper story about the flood. They're like, oh, you know, this, you know, this is a story about basically what you just fled. And there's a photograph that accompanied accompanied the the article. And it was a picture of someone throwing out some trash from their ruined house on the curb of the street. And someone had propped up a sign next to it that was written that that had the phrase, you are not what you own. And then underneath it said, Dash I, period Mackay. And <laughs> And I was like, oh, my God, like, I know what that is. That's, you know, that's a Fugazi lyric. Um, but it, it, it was one of those things that it was just this, this level of appreci- uh, appreciation for people are alive, right? People's lives and, and, and possessions and things are ruined and disrupted, but but you're still there. And in the end, you've just lost things. And, and it, it, was, it was one of those kind of moments in which um, the, the interesting ideas you know, or the passion or the emotion of a, of a song was just sort of translated into real life in a totally different context. I mean, that's not what the song is about per se, but, but it, I was like, wow, that's so cool. And I come to find out later, but that, that guy, the person who put it out there was this person who was actually, you know, a, a, a fellow student and I met him and became good friends with him. And, and eventually, you know, we were roommates for a while. Um, actually uh, he was on your show, um, a number of months ago, Brian Schill, um, oh, yeah. who's the bass player of, of Strap Hanger and, the author of the book, um, uh, the year's work in the punk bookshelf, right, um, which is kind of a cool kind of about reading and punks reading and stuff like that. So, um, yeah, and, I, and throughout college, I I kind of got deeper into Fugazi. This is in the the mid to late '90s, and of course, this is during the not just the Red Medicine, but also the End Hits um, era. Um, I saw them play three times. I saw them play in Chicago, in Eau Claire, Wisconsin, at a university campus, and then lastly in Minneapolis, which was a great show, and I was very happy that was the last show I got to see them at. Um, not, not that I'm happy it was the last show I saw, but I'm glad that was the final one, because it was an amazing show. Um, the band was was great. Um, uh, I also, I think, even before, though, I saw them live, I, I was one of those people who was trading bootleg live tapes. I don't know if you remember, like, in the 90s, there was this this this... Kind of community of people who would swap tapes like you could either trade a tape that you had or you could send someone like a tape in the mail they yeah. send you one back um so i had a couple of those at the time so i sort of knew what fugazi sounded like live but there's nothing like actually being there and and witnessing it um kind of germane to i think our our, our song for the day or our version one and version two of the song that we're going to talk about i never actually got to see provisional reprovisional play live, but. Um, I, I can envision it because one of the um, one of these bootlegs um, had a, a, a provisional or reprovisional performance on it
0: yeah by the way as I was you know preparing for this I w- was never sure whether to pronounce it reprovisional or reprovisional um, and I, I yeah, still don't I, think I settled on a solid answer know. to that but
1: <laughs> I, we may we may get into it eventually but, yeah. but I, I i I think the title is actually something of a an inside joke for the band. I mean, I'm not positive, but that's my guess. But I think the re is sort of like how people say redo or re-record or um I yeah, don't know, that's what I was thinking. your 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 roof or something. So I think it might be re, but but rep also makes sense too. I mean it it, it kind of rolls out the tongue a little bit better, kind of like representative. So yes. reprovisional kind of makes sense. Um I, I don't know what I've said more often. Was I saying reprovisional right there, or was I saying reprovisional?
0: Just just now, I, I think I forgot yeah. to listen.
1: Um. <laughs> yeah. I, I I could easily probably go from one to the other yeah. Probably because it's not a word that anyone ever says yeah. one ever says reprovisional well, In l- part because I think it's like an oxymoronic phrase, right?
0: <laughs> yeah, wh- why don't we just agree that we can uh, pronounce it however the hell we want And change our pronunciation <laughs> okay. as we go And uh, listeners sure. can deal with it Yeah,
1: I, I wonder if there's even a third totally incorrect pronunciation <laughs> you could do too Like repra. I don't know, original, or I I don't know if there's another way to make it even more obnoxious.
0: But, Reprovisionale. Yeah.
1: Reprovisionale, you can make it French. Yes. Sure. Sure. Way oui, oui. <laughs> way. Um, can I tell a real short story about the the Eau Claire Wisconsin show I was? Yeah, saw? please do. Um for me this when people ask me um if they see like an album of Fugazi on my my you know, CD shell for my record collection, and they ask about it. The, my, my favorite way to introduce them is my experience in Eau Claire. I've never been to Eau Claire before, but it's where a branch of the University of Wisconsin campus is. So I went there with some friends, including the guy that I mentioned previously, um, Brian Schill, and his cousin, Mark Schill. And um, I think it was Mark had pre purchased some tickets. And so this is, like, I guess, 97, so he might have done it over the phone or via the mail. But whatever it was, he had bought tickets for us ahead of time, which was great. Um, But the tickets were for $7, in my recollection. And so when we got to the gig, and we drove a considerable number of hours to get there. So we might have been a little bit earlier than I think the average um, Western Wisconsin concert goer probably would have arrived. So we were there early enough, and we got the tickets. And when we got them, we were refunded a dollar per ticket. Um, And the story we were told is that the band demanded that the university reimburse people and not charge seven dollars, but charge six dollars. And 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 again, this is this is secondhand, of course, information. But the but the story was that the band was going to refuse to play unless they lowered it to six dollars, that seven was just. They weren't gonna play for seven dollars, and six is the max.
0: Huh. Um
1: so we were given reimbursements. We got a dollar back for each of our tickets.
0: And now I'm right now looking on the Fugazi Live Series website, uh Eau Claire, Wisconsin in November ninety-eight. That probably sounds like the show.
1: Uh it must have been ninety eight, then maybe not ninety seven. Yeah, yeah ninety eight sounds about right.
0: This this page says door price five, so man. Okay. Who knows? <laughs> who knows what the real story is?
1: Um, I do remember. Maybe it was six originally, and they refunded it down to five. Um, but it was one dollar over.
0: <laughs> I, l- I like that though. It was just like some kind of miscommunication, or the the. Uh... And,
1: and what it might have been was the tickets were printed at five, but maybe um, we were charged six yeah. for them, even though the actual paper ticket was five. Mm-hmm. Is it a ticket that kind of is like a greenish, bluish one? Yeah,
0: yeah. There's a picture the of, of the ticket. Of the van on it? Right.
1: Yeah, yeah. I remember the the ticket. Um, I don't think I still have it, but. Um, it would, they definitely overcharged and we were reimbursed, which we thought was pretty funny.
0: Yeah, it's, it's funny and cool at the same time.
1: <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that people probably have a lot of stories of the band being principled in that way, um, especially around money. I mean, even the stories about like if someone's being disruptive and kind of a jerk at the show, that yeah. they get their refund in an envelope. You know, like, <laughs> sorry for wasting your time, but thanks for wasting our time too. Here's the door and here's your your five bucks back.
0: This is um, it's a it's pretty cool looking set list too. Starts out with birthday pony and pretty heavy on uh, end hits material. Yeah, looks like a good show.
1: Yeah, it it was great. Um, it was in a a strange kind of like semi large auditorium venue. Um, they were up on a like maybe a four or five foot high stage. The the one thing I remember pretty distinctly was that you know this is kind of the the nineties were that period in which MTV and modern rock or alt rock or whatever you want to say was kind of thriving in the U S and people still stage dived a lot. So some young punk looking guy got up on stage and, and tried jumping off the side that Ian was standing on and Ian essentially grabbed him and put him in a headlock and held him and talked to him while the band continued to perform. Um, and I think kind of topped him down and the guy eventually kind of walked off the stage, but, um, I don't, so it was, it it kind of fit with what I later learned about how the band operated in that kind of way too. Right. And of course you see that in the, in the instrument soundtrack too. the, the band being very willing to sort of stop and engage with people who are, you know, being disruptive or violent or um, stage diving on each other's heads and things like that. Yeah. uh... A small little bit happened there in Eau Claire
0: yeah the the episode uh, that uh, just came out uh promises uh, we talked about that exact part of instrument where yeah Ian gets a guy in a headlock for you know being rowdy in the audience then and like spitting on him right right, <laughs> Tried, right. tries to make him apologize and then throws him out yeah that's a right. a memorable scene
1: yeah and promises actually is is maybe one of my favorite songs that I saw them perform. I saw them played in Minneapolis. It was i think kind of later in the show i mean i could probably look at the fugazi live series to see exactly when it was but um i i understand that usually they would bring up people from the audience to sing the lyrics especially the latter part of the lyrics that are kind of the um i mean it's a song basically about harassment um and so they would often invite women up to sing and and the first woman they invited up on the stage in minneapolis as they started getting into where the singing would happen it was pretty clear that she didn't know the lyrics as well <laughs> to sing along. So, you know, the band kind of like, you know, kept kind of jamming along and then they, you know, kind of like graciously, you know, got someone else up on stage and had the first person sit back down again. And then they sung it. But um, I mean, talk about like an amazing song that, and I, and I really like the, the audience interaction of, of realizing that this is a song of course, written by men who are singing about something that's, that's not ultimately just about men, right? right. That it that involves harassment of women. And, and so bringing women up to kind of be involved in it and being able to articulate, you know, the conflict that's part of it. I, I, it was just a really memorable thing. And the cool thing was that the audience was very in sync with the band and very gracious when the first woman didn't really know the lyrics and they would applaud for her anyways. And um, it was just, it was a, a wonderful community feel that even for like a really big show, which is what the Minneapolis venue was pretty big, but it still felt like a small gig, even though there was hundreds of people there. And it was just really cool, really supportive moment. And um, I mean, I think Fugazi shows were very renowned for those kind of things happening regularly.
0: Yeah. When they had a good crowd, it was, it was a really good feeling. Um, I feel like I've probably said this on, on the on the show before but I, the first time I saw them I vividly remember like somebody in the in the pit like losing their glasses on the floor and just you know yeah. everybody stopping and 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 being like okay yeah, th- you know, this guy lost his glasses right. let's like help him and uh that's super cool yeah I, I was really young at the time and it yeah it just really struck me that you know these you know they're not just tough punks they're looking out for each other they're um uh and yeah it was a good feeling
1: Yeah. I mean, as someone who wears glasses and has had their glasses knocked off numerous (laughs) times, it shows like I buy glasses knocked off at a fishbone show and a veil show. um, It would have been wonderful if I could find them quicker by people not moving around. (laughs) It would have been great.
0: Well, Speaking of their live performances, um, I think that is a good segue into talking about uh, the songs that uh, are on the docket today. Yeah, I, I often, you know, I try to begin talking about the songs, seeing if I can find some kind of trivia, any sort of solid facts, interesting stuff that I can say objectively about the song. And I think for these, I might have more notes than any other that I've done so far. Right. So Me too. I mean, it's amazing. It's yeah. amazing. Yeah. I'll try to rattle off a few. So yeah, in terms of live performance, um you, you know, I did this data analysis on the, the set of like everything available on the Fugazi Live Series website and uh tried to see what I could glean from it. As far as the provisional reprovisional split, it's only eight times as, as um provisional is listed as being played reprovisional a lot more um and while it's not one of their like top 10 most played songs it is the second most played uh set closer that they ever used they very often closed sets with this and uh, i would like to take this opportunity to give a little trivia challenge to the listeners out there can you name the one song that was played more often as a closer than reprovisional i'll let you pause the podcast right now and think about it really challenge yourself See if you can uh, if you can do it. Go ahead. Okay, are you back? Do you think you want to take a stab at this, Dana? Do you have any idea what it might be?
1: Oh my God, I I I have almost no guess. I mean, I I can tell you probably what it's not. I mean, I could I could tell you it's not waiting room
0: <laughs> because That's right.
1: that wasn't. The, um, uh, but no, I, I actually have I have no idea. Um, I mean, no idea.
0: The answer, and it's only a few ahead of uh, reprovisional, but it is the. Very nice, chill, musical number, sweet and low. Wow. Yeah. Really? Yeah. Wow. Uh, That's great. Yeah, yeah they, they, they certainly liked closing with that one, uh, if the vibe was right, I guess. And, um, yeah, you know, before, I, you know, when I was doing this, shortly before I started this podcast, I did correspond a little bit with Ian Mackay about these uh, insights. And yeah, his brief comment about that was that uh, Reprovisional and Glue Man were both pretty wide open, his words, pretty wide open, and good closers. So, um, yeah, just something about those songs sort of called out to be uh, big, huge sounding set closers, I guess.
1: And I think that for like Glue Man and Reprovisional, I mean very different feel than Sweet and Low. I mean, like almost polar opposites. I mean, the Reprovisional, if you listen to the Reprovisional live performances, typically like the last, I mean, it, it no longer is like a song that's less than three minutes usually is like five or six minutes long right because they there's this they do this improvisi- improvisational stuff and it's usually incredibly feedback laden um there's all this like i mean it, there's all these like you can see some performances on youtube there's there's one performance that i watched um from a show in 91 in dc at the you can find it on youtube it's the whole performance for february 15th 1991 at the sacred heart church and they close, um, it's one of the, it's the last song and I've never seen them do this, but, um, Ian essentially picks up his guitar, puts it in front of his face and he's screaming into his guitar pickups, right. um, And I mean, maybe this happened more often than I understood or that I knew. But it's like, oh my god! Like I don't even know what I'm watching. Like I've never seen a performer do something like that. And he continues to do it even at the end, after like all the feedback is dying away. He's still on the stage with it pressed up against his head, and I can't even make out what he's what he's saying. Um, But then it just ends and it's over. And I'm like, oh my god! It it just. it, it's such a, a, I mean, when they had songs like glue man or reprovisional, it seemed like, and I, I think that's a great observation that there was that space to kind of do different things before they brought it back around again to the last like 15 seconds of the song. Right. So they could almost like jazz, you can kind of perform and do your own thing. Um, and usually it meant like lots of feedback and noise and, you know, you know, sort of creative drumming fills and stuff like that. on Brendan's part, um, and I, I should have guessed sweet and low because that makes sense, especially if it's a rowdy show. Um, Reprovisional isn't a great way to like tone things down. It, it's dissonant for sure.
0: Yeah, if you think of it in terms of like they, you know, when they wanted to end a show uh, in a big, loud way, there are a lot of options. If they wanted to end the mm-hmm. show in a very chill way, sweet and low is just the go-to yeah. option. So, just statistically, that seems like it would be uh, yeah. it would be the ex- yeah. explanation for that. Um, yeah. But yeah, and all that uh, feedback stuff sort of leads me into the next thing, which is, well, the, the the basic difference between provisional and reprovisional and why they recorded it twice and how they delineated it in the, uh, like, basically in terms of the Fugazi Live series and how they list it in certain ways. Um, so mm-hmm. it seems that um, this is, it seems that this is the first song that Gee tried to play guitar on live uh, on December 29th 1988 and I say tried because per Yunter Hobbitz, friend of the show who has uh, so many of these interesting observations on his website which is another com. um he he says about the show unfortunately problems with his guitar amplifier a couple of chords into the song ultimately prevent gee from further using his guitar after which the band takes another stab at the song, with Gee just focusing on the lead vocals. So right. um, so what I'm guessing yep. is that, uh, yeah, like after he started playing guitar, every performance after that was just sort of referred to as reprovisional. Right. Which is interesting also because Guy, from all the performances I could see on YouTube, hardly plays guitar in the song at all. It seems that he would just sort of hold it until... It got to that sort of noisy feedback section, and at that point, he would just sort of use the guitar to make crazy sounds and rub it up against the mic stand and things like that. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. yeah, even even that difference is like the difference is barely there in terms of in terms of live songs, and of course, we can discuss the uh, the different recorded versions. But uh, yeah, it's weird.
1: Ian, is this a good spot to mention that I think the story is even crazier than what we might even assume by there being two versions of nearly the same song Um, that if you do look at the fugazi live series there's not just sort of like those two versions there's Uh also a pre-provisional yes that was played at five shows (laughs) apparently all in europe in the 1988 before i think they kind of had fleshed out what the song was and there's also a provisional medley that, that was played once at a, like, an Italian social center, you know, like one of these like kind of autonomous run squats, probably. Um, and actually the, the person you're mentioning, Guter Habitz, has a note in the Fugazi live series. And you maybe you were about to mention this, but that it, it was like actually a medley of various things, including songs that hadn't even been released yet, like um, Promises and Hello Morning kind of mashed up with some of the provisional content, again, like at the end of the show. Uh-huh. Almost as if they were sort of trying to work out the details to what they wanted to do. But what is this song? Well, it's kind of like reprovisional or provisional. And maybe even like the band kind of lost track of what they were doing and they ended up creating something new and interesting that they later realized they wanted to call Hello Morning. I mean, I, I have no idea, but uh-huh. but the idea that there's one single performance with that the band calls Provisional Medley
0: yeah, um, I, in '88. I... I somehow missed that provisional medley one, but, I yeah, I do have a quote from Guy Picciotto, uh sort of about this, this and, uh, and pre-provisional, which you mentioned. So, uh, quoting, he says, We also had a very early song, which we played late in 1988 a few times in Europe, which had the chords to Hello Morning, but some of the lyrics to provisional. And we refer Ooh. to that one now as pre-provisional, even though it sounds nothing like the song. When we ended up hmm. recording Provisional at the end of that tour, I took the lyrics off the Hello Morning chords and used them on Provisional instead. Later, when we recorded Hello Morning during the argument sessions, we resurrected those old chords that had never been used and I added new lyrics to them. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So it's a complicated <laughs> tale.
1: Yeah. And I think this really speaks to like the label of the song too, which I think we eventually were eventually gonna get to, like the idea of provisional which, I mean, every dictionary definition you want to reference for, and even the way that people commonly talk about it, like to provision supplies or to be a provisional supporter, or even like, you know, with the IRA, like the provisional army was meant to be like this temporary army. I mean, provisional is temporary, contingent, meant to be changed at a later date, possibly preparatory or preliminary. I mean, it's all these words that kind of speak to something in flux or not yet solid. And so it's so ironic that that's the title that's given to this song, that eventually does change yeah. with the addition of Ghee playing guitar and they re-release it as re or rep provisional. <laughs> um, and which almost then that's why it, what I meant originally about I think it's like an inside joke, like, well, why call it re-provisional? Because provisional just assumes it's gonna be changed, right? If it's if it's contingent and temporary anyways, I mean, well, why wouldn't it just evolve on your own? You wouldn't even have to rename it re-provisional. It's almost like it's being recursive or oxymoronic. I just, I mean, maybe they're not doing that, but I that's how I read it. When I when I thought about it, I'm like, man, it just seems so ironic and almost funny. Like maybe they're making a joke.
0: Yeah, that is funny. I I guess I didn't think of that. It's um I wonder how many more, more ways they could add to the title to uh, to be redundant again. Maybe maybe
1: post reprovisional or something like that. Or
0: <laughs> double um, double plus reprovisional.
1: <laughs> double plus, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, that's really interesting. And and the the interesting thing, if you look at the Mar- margin walker or like on 13 songs in the credits, the only like non band member credit given to any of the songs is for provisional.
0: Yes. Where they give credit
1: to um, Eddie Janney from um, and I think I'm saying his name right. Was it Janie or Janney?
0: Yeah, Jenny from uh, Jenny. Untouchables, from, The Faith, Rights yeah. of Spring, One Last Wish, spring, Happy faith. Go Licky, yeah. Skewbald, and Brief Weeds. Also, he did go on to play yeah. guitar on Joe Lally's solo albums, or at least one of his right. solo albums. Yeah. 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 That's yeah. a very interesting credit. Uh, yeah, quote, Pop Sloppy Guitar on Provisional by Eddie Jenny, unquote, is how that's credited. Yeah. And yeah, that... <laughs> So, so even
1: though Gia is singing on it and Gia is present in the room when it's being recorded, they still have this other person who's a friend of theirs come in to do some kind of guitar work, whatever the hell pop sloppy guitar is. Like, I, I've never heard that. I had to Google it. And there's people <laughs> on Reddit discussing, like, what does that mean? Is that kind of like sort of playing pop-like, but kind of doing it sloppy and not very, you know... Um, technically correct or something I mean is he just sort of doing like rhythm guitar or I mean I can't really tell exactly what what you know Eddie's contribution is, but it's funny that they outsourced to him as opposed to the other guitarist in the room yes who could do it you know yeah mean you know
0: I have so many <laughs> questions about this I mean first of all i I'm interested to know why was Eddie Jenny there in the first place she's just like hanging out while Fugazi was doing these sessions was he Roing for them at the time um, yeah, and and he, he only he only contributes this one bit and yeah I was I was not sure about what exactly the nature of his contributions were myself I what I ended up thinking was the case is that during the breakdown um, there's this I, you, I, it's only two notes so you can hardly call it a guitar solo but there's a lot of echo on it. It's like, da-da, da on the provisional version. And that is sort of in that place on oh, yeah. reprovisional, that's where it's just sort of more of like a discordant, noisy... um it's feedback. Yeah, yeah, feedback fest. Uh, so I, I guess by process of elimination, I'm thinking that's what Eddie Janney Ooh. did on the Marginal yeah. Walker version.
1: It It makes the provisional one... I almost like... I don't know exactly what emotional label to give to it, but it gives provisional almost this contemplative, um, I wouldn't say happy, but almost like this very maybe contentedness in the middle of the song, right? Before it goes back, you know, to, you know, being allowed a louder rock song and the snarl that ends the song, you know, when his last, you know, line. Um, but yeah, it, it's a very different feel. Absolutely a very different. That's maybe one of the biggest differences I would say. In the actual what's what's going on melodically in the songs is that yeah. part.
0: Yeah, let's see. Uh I just to get another quote out of the way, since Guy is on record once or twice about this, um, there's like this is from just a QA I found online, uh, where someone's like, What's with three provisional? This sound seems like it's the same song as Provisional from thirteen songs. Gee says, quote, It is. We recorded the song twice, once for the Margin Walker album and once for Repeater. The only difference is that I'm playing guitar on the second version. We decided to reprise it because that was the first song I started playing guitar on. Before that, I only used to sing with a band, so we thought it'd be interesting to try it again. I guess the two versions do kind of sound more or less the same, but at the time, it made sense to us. End quote. Yeah. So it sounds like he's not exactly sure either why they (laughs) ultimately ended up re-recording it. Which is, you know, it's interesting in itself because one of the things that uh, hardcore Fugazi fans know about The Margin Walker EP is that, you know, they intended that to be their first full length album, but, you know, they recorded it at the end of this long, exhausting tour and the members sort of thought that some of the performances were not so great. So they sort of like cut a bunch of stuff from it and just said, "Okay, we'll release the good ones as an EP. But then out of those good ones, they ended up not sort of liking the way it was, I guess, uh, after all and re-recording that one
1: yeah yeah it it also though explains why i mean the band just you know, like you were saying before like why they just changed the name like it became reprovisional because all of a sudden when Gee starts playing guitar now it is this new thing uh, it's a new song all of a sudden even though it's the same song previously yeah I, I wonder if that's why also that i mean the band also there are some songs that they recorded that they almost never played live or they stopped playing like i mean one of them was um oh like a. Uh, in, in of humans, for example. Right. Like they almost rarely played that. And I had read an interview somewhere that the reason was, is because there was nothing for Guy to do, um, that he didn't sing on it and there was no, a guitar part for him to play it. Right. Um, except for like a little bit of background vocals, I think at one point. And so originally I wondered if that might've been what was going on with provisional, but of course he's, you know, he's singing, you know? So, um, there's, there's a variety of songs where, you know, people are doing things or not doing things, so what would be the big deal? But, um, yeah, it, it, it's interesting to think that they might have recorded the same versions even at the same time hmm. and just did a cut with Gee singing and one um, with him singing and playing guitar.
0: Yeah, and of course it's also, you know, not only is the band coming at it from a different direction, maybe they had a different vision for it, maybe they wanted to get some of Guy's, uh fun like noise feedback guitar playing on it. But also, it's one of the rare occasions where you can maybe discern the fingerprint of Donzi and Terra um, behind the boards, right? Because of course he did not record the Margin Walker EP, and he did record Repeater. So um, yeah, you you could you could try to you know if, for people wondering, yeah, what is the impact of the the engineer on all this stuff? Well, maybe the answer is in listening to these songs back to back, which is interesting just from a you know sonic perspective
1: yeah and it could also be that the role of the i mean people who are you know sound engineers are often the people who are saying that was good but maybe try it this way instead and maybe you know someone like don ziantara would say well had you thought about playing guitar on this one or hey eddie you're sitting in the corner want to play guitar in this <laughs> i mean it could have been yeah i mean i obviously you know um that wouldn't have been Don saying that regarding Eddie, but the recorder who was the who recorded um uh Margin Walker, who was the
0: That was uh, John the, Loder yeah. in London. Oh Loder,
1: right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah.
0: But of course, uh, for repeater, the producer was Ted Nicely. Um so Ooh. I guess he would have been the one saying, you know, try this, try that and Don's maybe just rolling and placing mics and all all that stuff.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, the, the margin Walker one was recorded. I mean, if it was John Loder, they would have recorded it in England right? at Southern studios or whatever it's called. Um, so if if Eddie Janey was there, probably they were on tour or something with him, or maybe he was gigging with them. Do you think? Yeah, this is, Um, this
0: is what I'm wondering about. So it's, it's going in my list of questions to ask the fellows if I get a chance. (laughs) Yeah, cool. It's an ever, ever growing document of questions I want to pepper these people with.
1: Yeah, or oh, they have I they mean there's years of of interesting questions to ask too.
0: <laughs> right. Um yeah, I mean to to talk about some of the differences between these songs which might be the most interesting angle to to come at it. Um we mentioned the yeah. the sort of quote-unquote guitar solo with echo versus the, you know, noisy, feedbacky, angular type of stuff going on just in terms
1: of right after Gee right says clear expensive skies right after that part kind of at the one minute mark
0: yeah right and yeah yeah in the middle of that on uh, reprovisional we can also say that he he sort of chimes in with vocals he says bang bang shoot shoot
1: which yeah. which yeah. doesn't happen okay. on
0: the first version mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. i mean a couple of the differences that came to mind for me is the very the very beginning that intro riff on reprovisional mm. it's very quiet indeed and very like plinky and muted and much yeah. just much quieter mm-hmm. than the rest of the track i think the like the equalization overall is a little more brittle or just at least more trebly more sharp on reprovisional and in provisional it's it's darker sounding i would say just mm-hmm. uh, absolutely just the entire mix yeah. um and i mean i think one of the most pronounced differences is Guy's vocal delivery.
1: Yes. Yes. I mean, Guy on provisional is singing, singing loudly, but on reprovisional, there's almost a shouting quality, I would say. He's he's
0: like snarling. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's
1: very, and and there's a snarl at, there's a snarl at the end of provisional for the last line, but it's a constant thing throughout on reprovisional.
0: Yeah. It's, it's an interesting choice. Like I, I want to say he doesn't quite sound like himself. It's to me, it's almost as if he, he's like overdoing the difference in order to like make it worthwhile to re-record this and sound different from provisional. Mm-hmm. And he, he ends up in a place where it's like a little over the top. It's, it's not Ooh. you. What I think of as like a typical Gee vocal.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, there's definitely more, um, yeah, I don't know if hostility is the right word, but there's definitely more earnestness <laughs> to it. Yeah. yeah. Um, the other kind of interesting thing that I didn't realize until I actually, um, I, I took both the tracks. I uh, I digitized my albums years ago, and then I saw so I have mp 3s of both of them, and I, and I opened up both of them in like a DAW, like a digital audio workstation. And I lined them all up in the timeline. And amazingly, they're almost the exact same length. I yeah. mean, people can notice that from the track. So they're playing that from the, you can see from the timing um it's so the band is playing almost exactly the same on each in terms of the time. The the key differences are there's between transitioning from say like a refrain to a chorus or when there's a break or a drop those things either begin or end a little bit differently huh. between the versions. But that's about the biggest difference for the timing. But the thing that I noticed when I lined them up, I could play both of them at the same time and his singing is almost like just a millisecond off for uh, like the first 30 seconds. I mean, it's almost a perfect copy for the, for part of it. And then it gets off later and then it almost comes back again uh, later at the end too. Um, the other cool thing about it is if you look at the wave, the sound wave, like, you know, a, a computer program will show you like volume, sort of like graphically displayed. Right. And if you have it stereo, so it's going up and down. Right. Um, it's very constant for provisional. So it's, it's mastered to be very, um, very static throughout the whole song, right? For reprovisional or reprovisional, there's all these sonic changes and dynamic changes. And one of the biggest changes you see, I mean, you, you mentioned one, the intro to it, the kind of little tinkling noises notes, I mean, are very quiet at the beginning, the middle part, um, where, um, things just sort of blow up and get really loud and heavy and screeching guitars. And I think maybe that's also the contribution of Gee, Any e and Together at maybe around 1.30 or so. There's like a big drop. And at that point, the volume is is way jacked up. It's louder than any point at, earlier in the song on reprovisional. But on provisional, it's no lo- louder at that point. Hmm. So the band was clearly like sort of... They chose, or the engineer, you know, Don Ziantara, chose to kind of make it louder. And after the drop and it, and it kicks back in again, it's definitely louder. And the other kind of dynamic changes at the end, the the last, I don't know, I'm probably going to get the number wrong, but maybe like the last 15, 20 seconds. In reprovisional, they start off quiet and they kind of build up. And it gets louder and louder to the end. And there's that last snarl yeah. um, that he says when he says, all the people we serve. Um, no, no, I'm sorry. What, what does he say at the end? He says... Um,
0: every slip's not a slide.
1: Oh, every slip's not a slide. Thank you. Yeah. Whereas for provisional, it stays the same. The volume is the the, the same across for the entirety of the entire song, but also the last 20 seconds. So they're clearly kind of changing people's experience with it, um, the loudness and quietness of it, and bringing people in a little bit and sort of shocking them in the middle with that loud part, I think, which yeah. is super cool, I think. It makes it more interesting to hear and listen to.
0: Yeah, and this brings up a you know, another possible reason why they might have re-recorded this, which is to be more in line with the live experience of how they were yeah. performing the song, because they're a very dynamic band, of course, and you know, I, I did notice in a lot of the the live versions that I was able to find, um, yeah, that, that intro riff, for example. Ian really liked to play that very quiet and very slow, mm-hmm. just to sort of give a little signal of what was to come and get the band on the on the same page and get ready to launch into it. I, I, another thing is that definitely in, in provisional, Ian is, for almost the entire song, just playing one chord, basically. And he finds like that's and that's the bones of what he's playing in reprovisional also. But he does find some interesting variations to do, Um, you know, it it sort of go up to the higher octave, hitting a couple of notes on the way. Um, So he's not he's not doing something dramatically different, but he's finding interesting little variations that he probably worked out live. And, uh, you know, another reason to put that on wax, as they say
1: yeah and that's an interesting kind of thesis that that reprovisional is kind of the consequence of performing provisional live enough that they got really comfortable with it to sort of change it a bit yeah um another thing i noticed when it was on when i had lined up the two tracks together is that the the breaks or the drops when they kind of transition between one part to the next part um those breaks are really stark in provisional. Like it almost there's almost a like silence, like a short half a second of silence in between those. For all of re-provisional though, the guitar parts like like have um they just echo across those parts that would otherwise be silent in provisional, which is what again would happen in a live performance. You know, in a studio, you can actually stop the sound, right? You can um, and you could do it, I guess, live too, but in, you know, the live performance, they probably just kept those notes going. Um, so it, that's another really key difference. And that I think that makes the provisional seem really kind of like, uh, kind of like tight in a way hmm. that reprovisional seems almost kind of like aggressive and sloppy. Like the sound kind of just comes and comes and comes and um, it changes its, it's, you know, intensity i suppose here and there but it it doesn't let up i guess in the same way the provisional it seems like they're playing with the stop and start um a bit throughout
0: yeah i'm i'm really glad you you did that and lined them up i didn't think to do that um i noticed that yeah my mp3 versions of the songs are both exactly two minutes 17 seconds so um yeah Uh for, for some reason i didn't think to do that but that's those are some cool findings thank you
1: yeah, I mean, you you might. I mean, if the listeners might want to try that. I mean, if they have a computer and two MP3s, like throw it in something like um, I use Audacity, A U D A C I T Y. So just throw them in, have two tracks, and line them up, and and you can. The cool thing is it allows you just to visualize at the at the outset, um, as well as kind of play them later on on top of each other. And I when I was kind of trying to analyze a little bit all the differences that I that are in the songs, I would mute one versus muting the other one to kind of see how they were doing things differently. Um, and and this this would never be something you would do in any other instance, unless of course these were your band's song and you were trying to figure out which versions you like better, I suppose. But like you'd never do it otherwise. Like yeah. why else would you do one song versus another song that's different? It makes sense when they're pretty much the same song, right? <laughs> Just perform differently. Now it makes sense to do that, I guess. <laughs>
0: The only other thing I can think of like that is, I remember there was something where somebody had uploaded to YouTube all of Billy Joel's songs played at the same time, and it, was, it sounded like wow. complete madness. <laughs> and, uh, I, I, was, I can see that. <laughs> it, was, it was actually a fascinating listen. I can't say I listened to the whole thing, but... Uh, <laughs> oh my goodness. But yeah, yeah. That sounds intense. Oh, it's intense, baby. Um <laughs> You you cannot handle pressure. No, um, no.
1: And Billy Joel's got a lot of songs. <laughs> he
0: does. It might it have like it'd be like It might have been just the songs from his like greatest hits album or something, but yeah, still.
1: It's it's the kind of thing that you'd imagine like an experimental noise band to do sometime yeah. in the eighties to sort of say, you know, as a rejection of corporate rock music or something like that, or, you know, in this case Billy Joel the performer to say we're going to show you how terrible this music really is and we're going to the way we're going to do that is by making it terrible by layering it on top of each other
0: it's a <laughs> it's a statement on the ubiquity of middle of the road uh, rock pop yeah yeah, yeah man sure <laughs> heady stuff um, <laughs> well let's see can I can I do one of these episodes without going on a Billy Joel tangent man, it just keeps happening um <laughs> Oh, you know what what else I wanted to say about the just the overall music is that the intro riff of the song the just the descending dun, 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 dun. Mm-hmm. I like I think it is something about it is sort of not Fugazi to me in an interesting way and uh for some reason it always reminded me of there's a Dead Kennedy's song called Moon Over Marin and for some reason it always reminds me of that song and it's it's like hard to make the case for it it's certainly not like one is a rip off of the other at all but something about the the melody of it the tonality of it uh reminds me of that and also i think that song is you know atypical of dead kennedys it's it's a little bit almost like stadium rocky um mm-hmm. this uh this this big open melody that they're doing um, yeah. So, yeah, it, it just strikes me every time I listen to it that, yeah, that riff is stands yeah. out a bit.
1: Well, there's something to be said for possibly musicians, you know, influencing each other. And then clearly the, the members of Fugazi know the members of the Dead Kennedys um, fairly well, I think. Um, at least I, I think they know Jello Biafra fairly well. So, I mean, there's nothing to be said for, or you shouldn't discount, I guess, the possible homage that might be made that you don't necessarily right other people might not pick up on non dead Kennedy fans
0: yeah yeah i I yeah it's hard to say it 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 absolutely is the kind of thing that could just all be in my head but uh yeah yeah I,
1: I'm trying to recall what that sound that song sounds like and it's been forever and I don't even know if I have that album
0: yeah um i'll I'll pop it in the show notes so listeners can take a listen see if anyone else is on the same page um it,
1: can I ask you a question about uh, but where I think Fugazi may have influenced another song um, I've, always, I've always wanted to ask people about this but um, the first the first song on in on the killtaker facet squared you know how there's the kind of the intro sound to it right um, that kind of almost echoey sound um, I always thought that one of the and it's not the last record but the last album I don't know if you know unwounds record uh, um, what is it? Um, something about Sounds for Civilization, or what is it called? Uh, shoot. Oh, man, I, 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 should have, I should have looked this up before I mentioned it, but the, the first song on that album also sounds like it to me when I listen to it.
0: <laughs>
1: huh. um, challenge, what is,
0: yeah, it challenge for a Civilized Society. Challenge for a Civilized
1: Society, yeah. Um, and it, it, I don't know if it's the first song, or but there's definitely a song on there that starts off in the same way. Whenever I hear it, I think... Is this Facet Squared? Because that's one of my favorite Fugazi songs. I'm like, no, this is an, an unwound album, and I, I know that unwound also knew Fugazi. I don't think they toured together, but I, I know the bands, the band members knew each other.
0: Yeah, definitely. Um, um, so, yeah, I, you know, I can't think of what song you're thinking of, but I'll have to re-listen to that album and, and see if I can identify it.
1: Yeah, I mean, unless you wanted to press pause in your recording, and I can find it in my albums <laughs> here. Um, but yeah, it's 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 one of those things that. Only people who are really into a group can um, it would it would mean that much to be able to say, well, isn't that that other band? Right, right. Um, other people be like, what's the big deal about that? Who cares? So, I think it might be the first song date if I remember correctly.
0: Okay, I, could be wrong. I will I will have a listen for sure. Want to take a stab at the lyrics to provisional, reprovisional? They there don't seem to be any real differences in the lyrics. I don't think. No. No. Uh, there's a little
1: bit difference in how versus say what the lyric sheets provided in the albums say and what is sung sometimes but i mean i don't think any of those actually changed much of the meaning of the songs right um i don't think but i mean that's that's just the improvisational nature i guess of, of singing something and liking that you know that take um the you know it I'm probably a little bit more of an Ian lyrics fans, but I really like Gee. It's it's, but you have to work harder to like Gee's lyrics because they're not as front and it's not as clear. They're more subtle, right? So I think people have to think about them more. But once you do think about them, they it kind of opens up, you know, a whole new world. And it's you know, I mean, you know, if you were an English student, I mean, obviously there's all this interpretation to it. But I think like a song like this, the, this is a, maybe all the Gee songs that I think I like on the face of it prior to any sort of attempt of interpreting it. I, I like the lyrics even as is, even though I don't even know what they all mean. Yeah. There's just something so compelling about them. I mean, almost, almost every line is amazing in, in none of themselves. I mean, you can almost contain each one of them as sort of like a cool little quote or lyric to share with people. Cause I think each one of them is so neatly packaged um, and there's an emotionality to, to almost all of them. Like some of my favorite lines, like, um, it's pointless to walk when it's past time to run or secured under the weight of watchful eyes, lulled to sleep under clear, expansive skies. Um, I mean, what a what a I mean, what a mind job. I mean, I don't even know what to think about some of this, but I mean, it's, it's so cool and provocative, even on the face of it. Um, I don't even have to necessarily wonder what it's about. Sometimes I just am impressed by it. Um, yeah. You know what I
0: mean? Uh, of course, we have touched uh, before in this podcast on how difficult Gee's lyrics can be at times. And something that I love in this song that kind of speaks to that is, so there's this line that ties the, you know, two stanzas together. He says, in other words, not to get it wrong, as if like, right. as if he's saying, okay, let, let me put that what I just said in simpler terms for you now. It seems to be what that line is saying. And then what right. he says after that, I don't know if it makes it any clearer exactly. It's just, it's, it's more of Guy's like just interesting poetry and yeah, I like it too, but I, I, yeah, that line strikes me as funny.
1: It, It does seem to be like a connector between someone who says something to you is explaining something in a story and says, you don't get it let me try to explain it differently. And the metaphors are completely different. Like it's not really like the first part <laughs> is a different version of the second part or vice versa. They're just different. Yeah. And I don't think they're related, but it's almost as if he's kind of like trying to keep people engaged in the conversation. Like, okay, don't give up on what i just said. Let me keep talking here and see if this clears anything up. <laughs> and I don't think it does, but it's, it's what a compelling way to, to do it. And you can use that phrase in all sorts of ways. Like in other words, not to get it wrong, um, it, it's just such a cool connecting phrase in all sorts of ways. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Um, so, I mean, in general, I I will say that I think the, the lines that come after that maybe are the clearest in the song, right? Secured under the weight of watchful eyes, lulled to sleep under clear, expansive skies, seems to be speaking about some sort of, you know, surveillance state Mm-hmm. basically right, right? um mm-hmm. and i did want to point out i don't know if you remember this or saw this at the time but in the mid 2000s right i want to say like 2007 ish uh i you know i first saw this and people were taking pictures of it there were these posters in london for like transport for london and it was about um the, like talking about cctv on buses mm-hmm. And so it's kind of like a promotional poster, but it is the most ridiculously Orwellian thing you've ever seen. Um, it literally says the, the words on the poster are secure beneath the watchful eyes. Huh? It's, it's almost verbatim from this song secure beneath the watchful eyes. It says, and I mean, and that's not even talking about the art style, which is like, I, I almost feel like, you know, th- the Metropolitan Transit Authority, or whatever, uh, you know, had <laughs> hired a designer to make a uh, feel-good poster about the CCTV on the buses and how secure it's going to make things, and and he decided to sort of like stick it to him by designing this thing that purposely looks like a like Orwellian propaganda. Um, it's yeah. crazy. <laughs> I will, uh, and, and maybe
1: plagiarize some Fugazi lyrics along the way, too. Maybe
0: possibly. so. I'm, I'm so curious about this. I'd love to know who made this and what they were thinking, but uh, I'll, I'll post this in the show notes, too, of course, for people who don't know what I'm talking about. Uh, you got to see it.
1: And the funny thing is about, you know, that so much of this is about context. If you take one line out of this song, it could have totally different meaning. Right. So like if you look at the phrase secured under the weight of watchful eyes, I mean, that could be the NSA, but it could also be loving parents. Right Um, lulled to sleep under clear, expansive skies could be like the nonstop surveillance by military satellites, you know or, or you know the sort of vacuum approach that spy agencies have to the internet. Or it could be like you know relaxing in the presence of safety and impressiveness and just kind of being out in nature like camping under the stars. Like I mean, there's a safety in kind of thinking about the world is stable around you and this, the, the sky isn't literally falling. But again, in the context of all this other stuff, like conflicting histories tearing us apart, <laughs> right? Um, or hiding behind targets, you know. I mean, that that makes it definitely not sound like it's about parents, you know, protecting their children, or you know that the sky is not literally falling, but that it's in fact probably about some kind of government malevolence or spying or, um, you know, distru- you know, distrustfulness of of the state or something like that, or even you know, like international chaos. I mean, some of this could be like. Um, part of the, the, that we hope we don't get what we deserve or, um, conflicting histories tearing us apart, kind of dealing with, you know, multiple narratives of the past or worrying that like responsibility and accountability is coming for people, you know, kind of like, you know, when people see something terrible happening in the news and they say, Oh man, that's terrible. But then they don't do anything about it. Or they turn the other way or, um, you make justifications or excuses for, you know, that terrible thing happening. Um, I think there's a level of malevolence operating beneath the beautiful poetry that we're getting from Yi Ye here. Yes,
0: yeah, certainly. And yeah, all all that language that can be interpreted as comforting is yeah, it's just an effective way to, you know, rhetorically make this sort of uh, ironic, sardonic comment about th- things that are... Things that are malevolent, things that are sinister, but that are sort of done in the name of our safety, you know, patriot acts, yeah. et cetera. Um, yeah, for me, the the sort of key line is hoping every slip's not a slide, which I always interpreted yeah. as you know every every sort of slip of freedom, um, every, every you know as you as you referred to every sort of terrible thing that happens we just say, okay, well, let's hope that's just a little slip and let's hope it's not a full-blown slide into fascism or whatever.
1: Yeah, making a small mistake that could turn into a big one. If it's just a mistake, that's fine. But if it's an accident or a tragedy or, yeah, wanting to stop it so you see something bad, well, don't turn away. Make sure that that bad thing doesn't turn out to be a terrible thing.
0: Yeah, yeah, which is what most of us tend not to do. Yeah, we're just like, well, yeah. oh, hope hope nothing worse comes from that. Um, hope, yeah. hope that all the <laughs> systems that we trust are in place uh, do something to, uh, you know, bring, bring about justice.
1: Yeah. And I, I was thinking about the context of this song. So being written in like 88, for example, um, I mean, this is a, almost a decade into kind of like a right wing resurgence nationally in the U S and Reaganomics. It's also like the tail end of the central American insurgency wars But it's also the period right on the cusp of when the Cold War started disintegrating. I mean, it's like a pivotal time in history. In fact, 1989 is the kind of this this year that historians today kind of talk about as sort of changing the modern era. It's the fall of the Soviet Union, the advent of what, you know, Americans often call the New World Order, kind of unquestioned U.S. dominance. And of course, in 88 is, you know, we see the election of George Bush Sr., the former CIA director. Um, So it's... Of course, for people who grew up in the Cold War, there is this sort of like bigger than, um, bigger force in the world that you can't really get your head around. That's um, that's attacking people in ways that you you can't physically see, but you know it's there. It's this oppressiveness, and that's kind of something what I get out of this song that it's mm. there is an oppressiveness lurking in the background and trying to get people to notice it and to see it um, and do something about it.
0: Yeah. which I think is, and how, is how, how, important. <laughs> yeah, I, I think a lot of the song is how easy it is to ignore. I, I guess especially the more privilege you have, the easier it is to ignore.
1: The The other part, the the first part, the first when you were saying the first stanza before the... Um, um, in other words, not to get it wrong, <laughs> the part before that that is a little bit less clear, um, uh, there's the line of clear up the chambers and sew up the lips. And... That, that that's one of the lines that, that I think there could be two very different meanings to, but that maybe have the same general conclusion. But but as a metaphor, you could say that clearing up the chambers and selling at the loose could be like clearing out Congress, for example, and making them not talk about what they're doing, right? To, you know, sort of they're acting You know, in bad faith or malevolently, they're doing terrible things in the world, but they're not going to share. They're not going to tell people about it. Or maybe like on an interpersonal level, because, you know, on repeater for Reprovisional, there's, you know, there are songs about interpersonal violence and, you know, murder and stuff. You could say clearing out the chambers and slowing out the lips could be like firing a gun at someone and trying to prevent them from snitching about it, too. Hmm. Like to to say clearing out my chamber with my gun. And then I'm also going to try to make sure no one tells on me to say what I did. Right. to Turn me in.
0: I love that actually. I, I, the Congress thing did not cross my mind. That's very interesting. Um, yeah. The and
1: both of them in a way like are similar. You know, I mean, the yeah. slowing up the lips is pretty clear, but you don't know what what context. I guess the chambers have been cleared out, <laughs> or what chambers have been cleared.
0: And I mean, the hardest thing for me in the song is what is the last one. Uh, that's that's something that just mm. eludes me. Yeah. Uh, it's yeah. it's almost yeah. like. Something about the phraseology is almost like as if it's talking about the Antichrist, you know, that kind of a thing. Hmm. The, the last, uh, yeah. you know the last uh, president of a free democracy, you know, for example, mm-hmm. I, I don't know. Oh yeah,
1: sure. And I mean, he is 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 amazingly intentional i think with how he crafts his lyrics so i mean i wouldn't be surprised if there was that nuance to those two words last one um but that's that's the one that that i got hung up on too i mean i looked at every single line and those those were really that's the only line i really didn't know what could be said about them what what is what is actually being referred to
0: Hmm. yeah tough one that's
1: it's a, and that, that's probably what makes it open to interpretation. That's where people can think about it being about the NSA or about, you know, the Contras in Nicaragua or about, you know, all sorts of things. Hmm. You, can, you can interpret it in whatever way you want, which, you know, the band, of course, is very cool with us doing, struggling with it or interpreting however we want to.
0: Yeah, yeah, they'd, they'd much rather us do that than uh, than give us straight answers, which yeah, which sure. I like and it confounds me at the same time.
1: It's, 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 it's probably also empowering too. I mean, there might be like a certain um, political aesthetic to it that I I don't want to necessarily preach to you, but I want to provoke you to think about things differently. Right. And if there's multiple conclusions you can draw from it, that's great. Or if there's a conclusion that's relevant for your own interpersonal life, well, that's all the better. Um, That, and I think a lot of people have, have read that stuff into Fugazi lyrics before and have taken things out of it that, you know, probably the band members never intended, but, Um, but that that are important for those people who hear them, like it it matters to them, you know? Yeah. So yeah. Invite it.
0: Well said, man. I agree. That's a a good way to sum up what we do on this podcast. (laughs) Week in, week out, (laughs) grappling with these lyrics Uh, to move on. Something that, uh, I like is to see if I can find any interesting covers of the song. Yeah. Um, not too many, but there is a band called the dirty nil N I L. Yeah. They're a Canadian yeah. bands. Did you see this cover? I
1: saw it. I thought it was pretty um religious to the the original one, I
0: thought. Yeah. I thought they did quite a good job. I did like I, I thought the video was amusingly incongruous. Like they're Yes. They're they're doing a great job here. The singer has this um really just good sort of hardcore delivery uh to his voice mm-hmm. um but they're performing in this rather nice looking like living room with a white marble fireplace with gold appointments and like a nice looking hardwood mantle um yes. <laughs> so i'm like these <laughs> these guys are really ripping out this uh this punk song and sounding like badasses in quite a nice uh little house so uh, congratulations guys um yeah,
1: yeah. <laughs> i and i had never heard of the dirty Nil before i i found it i think probably in the same way i also found a couple um and I, I knew people did this, and I've seen other, I've seen people do this for other songs, not Fugazi songs, but there's a whole community of people who play along on their own instruments to songs. And there were a couple bass players who played along
0: mm-hmm.
1: to Reprovisional that I thought were pretty cool, and also did a pretty decent job with it.
0: Yeah, probably not too much to do for them, though, right?
1: Yeah, it's pretty basic, but it sounded good. Um, yeah. And I, I think anytime that someone really wants to take on a song, I mean it. It means something to them, and the fact that I think two people chose to play along to that one, I thought that was great, that they wanted to play along to it.
0: Yeah. So also every show, we turn to the Alphabetical Fugazi Facebook group, uh, ask people what they think. This week, John O'Neill says, when I was 14, my friend used to say, in reprovisional, Guy sounds like a pirate. Um, <laughs> I, I like that a lot, John. I can I can definitely see that. He's really putting some piratey stank on it
1: yeah and i would say even like for provisional at the end that last line in both versions there's definitely i mean the word i used before was snarl there's definitely like a there's some grit to it but it's throughout the whole version of reprovisional for sure pirate is a good way to put it i can't imagine Gee as a pirate though I... he doesn't have the pirate physique
0: uh, yeah well i don't know um i i I would cast him in a pirate movie if I were a casting director. Let's see what he can do. He's, you know, yeah. he's not going to be the captain. Definitely not. No. He, he no. might be like a a midshipman or whatever.
1: Yeah. Sure. Sure. Yeah.
0: <laughs> uh, Benjamino Gili says, looking back on the whole Fugazi catalog, all these years later, and witnessing how they seem to approach creating their albums, I was always mystified as to why they decided to re-record a previously released song, and. uh... It, Bradford Reed Goodwin replies, "Yeah, before Steady Diet came out, I just thought it was their theme song, and a version of it would be on every new record. Now that would <laughs> that would be fascinating.
1: That would have been pretty cool. Yeah, yeah, I would like that.
0: Uh, Bradford also says uh, probably listened to these hundreds of times over the years, trying to figure out what they thought was missing from the Margin Walker take to make them want to re-record musically. The main difference is more range in the recording." Uh, and the vocal delivery seems to be about a creeping totalitarian state, so a message of vigilant resistance is one that can't be repeated enough, especially if you're a perfectionist band that wants to make sure not to get it wrong before it's past time to run. Notable moments in Reprovisional, channeling the Beatles in the lines Bang Bang Shoot Shoot, Happiness is a Warm gi. That That's very uh, interesting, Bradford. I had never <laughs> noticed before that, yeah, that Bang Bang Shoot Shoot comes from, yeah, one of my favorite Beatles songs. Um, <laughs> hmm. I, I guess that had to have been intentional, but it's it's in such a different context that I never noticed it before. That's funny. Uh, Rob Reginio says, It's near the bottom of my Fugazi rankings. I actually like the Margin Walker version a bit better. Seems like they used it as their closer pretty often in the earlier days. And Eric Eddy says, Lulled to sleep under clear expansive skies might be my favorite line on repeater. I also love how Brendan uses his hats on this. Sounds like a snake hissing. It's more pronounced on reprovisional than provisional. Um, so thanks for those contributions, guys. And uh, that brings us to ratings. So Dana Williams on this show we always try to assign some kind of a rating to the song we're talking about, from one to five stars, only in the context of the Fugazi catalog. So, um, I think you have options on this. I think you could treat this as one song. You could treat them both as different songs, um, <laughs> however you want. But uh, what, what's your gut reaction to asking to uh, being asked to rate this?
1: Well, if I could first say, just this is like a, a terribly, almost unfair thing to do for any song for Fugazi. Um, I'm just to rate a band that, you know, of course people have such fond, um, affection for, but, um, I, I didn't really know cause I, I, figured that this is, I mean, this is something that I've heard regularly on your podcast and I thought, well, how would I rate it? And I didn't know if I would have a very good objective answer to it unless I listened to other songs and compared it. Um, I, so I, I teach, you know, sociology at a university and I, one of the classes I teach is statistical analysis. And I thought, well, the really only fair way to go about doing this would be to, of course, rank all of the songs and to compare it.
0: And, and are you telling me that's what you did?
1: So that's what I did. Oh my um, I sat down and I listened to every album. Um, the only one I didn't listen to was Furniture, and that's because I, I had a hard time finding my 7-inch for it. But I listened to all the other ones. Um, I I guess, to be fair, I skipped the instrument soundtrack ones, specifically the the different versions on there. So I just... I did the main studio albums. Um, And what I found was kind of what I suspected I would find is that I had all this upward skew, Skew is just a statistical term to say that like where all the numbers fall tended to be higher than the average. So if it's one to five, you'd expect <laughs> half of them, most of them, to be clustered around three. <laughs> most, I mean, they were much higher. Yes. Um, that, I also thought
0: I have not been writing these down, but that is my strong suspicion too. I, I thought that if I were really doing this fairly, the average would be three. But I very much think that I have a high skew myself, also yeah
1: and the other way to kind of think about it is if i was listening to say like a fugazi song and then just another song that i have an mp3 for and go back and forth would the the again comparatively would it would it matter you know like so if i listened to say the dirty nil and i listened to the fugazi version would that change my impression of the song um so all i did was i just listened to the fugazi versions just those and i and i and i was as i was sitting down to do this i thought it, it's hard even to come up with one singular objective way to apply like a number to this anyways. So what I did was I ranked on three different criteria. The, what, the, what I liked about the music, the lyrics, and then finally sort of my nostalgic feel about it, feeling about it.
0: Hmm, um, so a, one was just kind like, of intangible category.
1: Yeah. And just kind of like the, the emotions and the memories that it brought up for you. Did I, you know, were they positive, was it resonant? Did I really, did it, were they're strong or were they kind of like, Oh yeah, I mean, this is the song I usually kind of zoned out on or I, I skipped or whatever. Um, so I, I listened all, all, I don't know, hundred and whatever they are, 110, 120 songs, um, and gave the three numbers to each one of them. Um, when I did this for like all the songs, um, the entire Fugazi catalog, I had a 3.7 out of five. So not that's, bad, that's not the, bad. that's the upward skew, I guess, of it all. Um, And those three numbers, the music, the lyrics, and the nostalgia, were all kind of about the same. The lyrics actually were the ones I ranked the lowest of all of them for some reason. But um, when I did provisional and reprovisional, I actually listened to them on different days. So I don't know if that mattered at all. Um, But I did rank provisional higher. Um, I gave it a 4.6 out of 5. Um, So... Uh, and I I probably should double-check just to make sure I know exactly what what the numbers were for and in what way they were, for it. For Provisional, I gave it a five for the music, a five for the lyrics, but four for nostalgia. So I guess I didn't quite look back as fondly as it being a standout. Um, On on Margin Walker, I mean, I I gave a five to um, um, Promises, for example, which I mentioned before. Or on 13 songs, it was, you know, things like um, um, Give Me the Cure, um, Suggestion were pretty high. Um, for Reprovisional it was lower I gave a 4 to that um, 4 out of 5 uh, and I, the, the way in which I think that one kind of got knocked down was that I, I was not quite as smitten with the musics and, and lyrical delivery there so I gave basically a 4 for my 3 different categories um, so for whatever reason when I was listening to it I guess the the, the pirate gi didn't quite do it for me in the same way <laughs> that the, the just the Assertive singing Yi version uh, and provisional did it for me. Um, but what I did after that was I standardized it. So for people in your, your podcast listeners, what I, what I mean by that is I, I said, well, 3.7 for the overall catalog is not quite, it's not a, that's not a normal curve. So to normalize my curve, I had to kind of suck the numbers down. And in doing so, I came up with a 4.5 for provisional and a 3-ish or so for reprovisional. So reprovisional is kind of in the middle then. For me and provisional was kind of at the upper end then so four point five ish or so for
0: provisional Professor Williams, I expected a an academic acumen that you would bring to this show <laughs> but I Sorry. clearly I clearly did not anticipate uh, how geeky you would get with this, and I very much appreciate that <laughs> now the the fact that you did this uh, that gives us additional context for your ratings would you like to just? Let us know, like, what are your, what are your top three songs? What are your bottom three?
1: Um, sure. So I actually have a spreadsheet open. Let me, let me sort it and I can tell you what, what I gave fives to. Um, so the ones that were the absolute lowest, um, and I, I'm, I'm probably going to, um, offend numerous listeners to your show, but (laughs) the one that I gave the lowest to was Floating Boy on End Hits, um, It's one of the songs that I just kind of thought was crammed in there. It didn't do much for me. The lyrics, particularly, I thought was kind of the lowest.
0: Uh, Um, I can hear the boos and hisses from here.
1: I know, and I'm I'm very sorry about that. I mean, and (laughs) I'm sure I'm assuming that every song probably has their vigilant defenders who oh
0: yes they do. You know,
1: stand on their hill. (laughs) Um, So some of the other really low ones, two beats off on repeater. Joe number one was probably my lowest ranked instrumental, which I feel bad about because I still. Kind of like it, but it was it was still pretty low ranked Um, break in. I didn't really care for. So those are like my bottom four or five. I think the ones that were at the very top, um, the ones that I gave fives all the way across to um, um, are also for the most part on some of my favorite albums. Um, If if I had to pick which album is my favorite, I probably would say um, in on the kill taker. Um, and, but the album that had the highest average score was the argument. And maybe it's just because it's the most recent, or maybe it's because their musical evolution kind of occurred at the same time as my own, you know, life changes and my own musical interest changes. And I kind of came along with the band. And so what they ended on is sort of what I appreciated the most. But, um, the songs that, that I gave the highest and top ratings to, um, include, um, but are not limited to, um, (laughs) suggestion promises fast squared smallpox champion great cop cash out oh and argument
0: fascinating okay
1: um and if i look at that list i mean i think what they all have in common is that there's a really strong kind of like visceral and anthemic quality to all of them i think i'm a big fan of songs that are big and anthemic and, and the other thing is i think most of those, with the exception of Smallpox Champion and, and O, oh, are also Makai songs, not, not Gee songs. But um, it, again, it, it was a really difficult thing to do. And, and actually, like half of all of the songs are still in the four range. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, they're like little baby steps away from being, you know top for me so that's why i was saying this is very unfair and and almost mean-spirited to ask people to five scale.
0: (laughs) well i appreciate you going out on a limb and risking offending people which is you know that's my bread and butter on this podcast i have to uh you know every time i i give a lower than average rating i i fear the response uh which brings me to my rating for this song and you know a, a lot of a lot of the songs that i've done on this podcast um you you sort of have a different opinion of them that can change sometimes before you listen to them really closely in preparing to talk about them for an hour and change. Uh, And sometimes, to my great surprise, I've found that I like a song a lot more than I thought I did. Uh, And with Provisional and Reprovisional, I think it's actually kind of the opposite. I I think I went in thinking that I liked these songs more than I actually do. And it turns out that yeah, as I said, Ian's mostly playing one chord for the whole song. Joe's playing like two notes. It's not anything special from a from a Brendan Canty perspective. I think the lyrics are uh, are as good as the next Gipachoto song. But I think a lot of and, and as far as the vocal delivery, yeah, I don't like Pirate Guy so much. Uh, but I also think on provisional, yeah, they didn't nail it there either. I think the delivery was a little a little anemic. Um, I, I think they. They almost split the difference away from what the song should really be, so, and and that that of course brings up the um, the concept of well maybe maybe a Fugazi song should actually be judged by its aggregate live performances, and uh, I I think that right, this was probably right. a better live song than they captured um, on a- absolutely uh, yeah on either absolutely. version, which is yeah. maybe a fair thing to say about almost almost every Fugazi song because they're such a fantastic yeah. live band. Um, but yeah, just in terms of the recorded, uh, versions, if I lump these together as one song, I think I'll go with like a, yeah, 2.5, 2.4 or something like that. I think it's a little below average for me. Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah. And that's pretty close to what I, when I standardized, um, Reprovisional, I got around a three, that kind of makes sense. Yeah. And, And your, your comment about it being, how, what word did you use sort of not impressive, like that it wasn't, it wasn't very complex. Um, I, I asked my my partner to listen to it. Um, they're not a Fugazi fan. I mean, they appreciate Fugazi, but that's Fugazi is not their thing. Um, so I gave them a pair of headphones and I gave them the lyric sheet. And I said, would you just mind like spending two and a half minutes and just telling me what you think afterward? And one of their first comments was, it's it's really simple. Um and I thought, well, that's that's a good decent way to put it. It's not like a song that goes in a lot of directions. I mean, there's there's a dynamic quality to parts of it, but it's not like, I don't know, like it's not like "Rent" it or it's not like, um, no, it's what's another example of a song that totally changes direction? Um,
0: "Latest Disgrace" comes to mind.
1: "Latest Disgrace," right? Um, and it's not it's not particularly like um, even I mean even "Pirate Gi aside, it's not particularly. Um, uh, acidic at all i mean there's not like a, a like a kind of like an aggressive put off kind of thing like i mean like uh um would be another good example like bed for the scraping mm-hmm. it's not like you listen to it and say whoa <laughs> where'd this come from right it's just a sort of a standard fugazi song which i think at the time they they didn't have a, i don't know if you can say they had a formula but it, it very much fits in with their first few years of, of recording i mean it's it it seems like I, in my opinion, like steady diet of nothing is kind of like a transitional period. Like that they veered away from that early material, which was simpler and a little bit more straightforward, to something that was definitely more experimental. And I think that yeah, reprovisional and provisionals are a good example of something that it wasn't super complex or dynamic for a Fugazi song.
0: Yeah. Well, I really appreciate all the time you put into thinking about this. Um, you clearly did a lot of homework. You brought in outside opinions. Even I thank you for all that. I want to give you the opportunity (laughs) to, uh, if you have any, do some plugs. If you want to say where listeners can reach you online, or if you have any sort of projects you can work on, any, anything, any published material you'd like to point people towards, whatever.
1: Yeah, sure. Um, I mean, so I'm an an academic and I'm a sociologist and I write, you know, articles and books and so forth. And if people want to track down any of that stuff, you can find the full text of almost all of my academic writing online. Um, You can go to either academia.edu or researchgate.net and you can search for me. Um, Some of it's even on like H Commons. Um, All except I have my most recent book is an online Black Flags and Social Movements, which is about international anarchist movements. Um, I have an, an electronic music project and i've done a couple things in the past um that i've done under different monikers um all of it or most of it i guess can be found on bandcamp um one would be division by zero um and another one which is actually pretty relevant for this podcast uh, surrender rendit um huh. which is pretty non overtly political and you know it's i don't know I'm, i am i i don't it it's it's probably not for the average Fergazi fan and i don't even know how good it is but if people are curious they can look it up <laughs> um, Uh, If you want to reach me directly, I mean, email works, but I'm also on Twitter. My handle there is um, at DMWilliamsSoch, i I'm involved in um, uh, a book project right now with some folks um, that's called the Anarchism and Punk Book Project. That's going to be published by the um, kind of the punk adjacent um, active distribution, which distributed music kind of as a record label, but also sort of radical literature, too. Um, So there's a number of editors who are compiling essays and chapters that are kind of about the connection between anarchist and politics and anarchist movements and punk. Um, If you want to learn more about that project, I think their website is anarchismandpunk.noblogs.org, I think. But you can probably search online for it, too. Um, There's lots of other stuff, too, but... um, Nothing probably particularly special to to mention, but the biggest biggest thing I'd like to say is that it's been an absolute pleasure being on a podcast like this. And even though I put in a lot of work, I mean, it's completely enjoyable work. Um, so I've I've loved every minute of it. Thanks for chatting.
0: You're very welcome. Total pleasure on my end, also. I was uh, fascinated, and I'm sure the listeners were also. It's uh, you had some brilliant things to say. Really gave me some uh, different angles to think about. So thanks very much. Yeah. And uh, yeah. hey. Listeners, thanks for listening, as always. If you want to uh, spread the word about the show, I always appreciate that. And you can reach me at z at gmail.com, as Dana did, lo these many months ago, to uh, first get in in contact with me. And you can join that Facebook group that I mentioned called The Alphabetical Fugazi, and let us know what you think about the next one we've got coming up. I hope you'll join me for the next episode when we'll be discussing Public Witness Program. Until then, keep your eyes open.